It's really a great pleasure and honor to, to call up a colleague and, and a friend, Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger, to do this special session for us. Please don't be bashful in taking more dinner while, while we're learning together. But with that, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. And thank you for having me. Thank you to Rav Shmuley. I've never been in your city before. It's pretty exciting, at least for me. Sorry it's so cold. <laughs> I, I accept your apology. <laughs> but don't do it again. <laughs> there are circles, religious circles, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim circles, in which pluralism is a dirty word. But from my perspective, pluralism might be just one of the greatest Jewish contributions to human thought. It's all over, literally, the Talmud, and later medieval thought, and Hasidic thought, <coughs> Kabbalistic thought. Uh, there are so many different texts that we could look at, and all the teaching I do whenever I teach is about learning texts. There are so many different texts that we could look at. Uh, in the little time we have, we'll look at Hasidic texts. And 90% of the Hasidic texts we're going to see in the subject of pluralism are from an author, I shouldn't call him an author, a Hasidic leader, called the Meishilach. Meishilach was his book's name. In English, that would be The Flowing Waters. This is Rabbi Mordechai Liner, the Rebbe from Izbich. Izbich uh, was a town in, in Poland. Uh, we're talking about the period of 1830s and 1840s, when he taught a small group of Hasidim, of followers. Uh, probably this material we're about to read uh, are the written records of what he spoke orally in Yiddish and in Hebrew probably around the Shabbat table, perhaps at the end of Shabbat, near the end of Shabbat, during the third meal, Sudashvishit, as the sun is going down. He wasn't, to tell you the truth, that popular in his time. And he wouldn't be popular in our time were it not for Rabbi Shlomo Karbach. There's a story that Rabbi Shlomo Karbach, this goes back 40 years ago, was browsing in a Jewish bookstore and found this dust-covered volume on the shelf, the Meir Shiloh, started reading it, and decided that, wow, I found something here. This is it. I uh, met someone who knew the great-grandson of the Meishaloch in Jerusalem who sold the books, the, uh, his great-grandfather's books, the Meishaloch, and he said that until Rabbi Shlomo Karbach popularized these texts, he sold a few dozen every year. But since Rabbi Shlomo Karbach made the Meishaloch famous, he's been selling thousands every year, and it really has become a uh, text that Lots of different types of Jewish spiritual searchers in Jerusalem and around the Jewish world have been reading for the past few decades. We're going to begin with a piece uh, that the Meir Shiloh spoke on Parshat Yitro. That's the Torah portion when we read the Ten Commandments. And the focus of this teaching is on the first of the Ten Commandments, and the focus is actually on the first word of the Ten Commandments. The first word is Anuchi, which means I. Just to remind you, the first commandment says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In Hebrew, Anuchi Hashem Elokecha, Asher Hutzeiticha Mi'aretz Mitzrayim. The Meishiloch is going to spend a lot of paragraphs on that first word, I. And before we even read, I'll give you some background. Anuchi, I. God reveals himself at Mount Sinai, the greatest theophany that the world has ever seen, with that word, I. God is ascribing himself and how he presents himself to the Jewish people. And the Meishelach is going to ask a question, a very simple question, the following. We know 
that there actually is a different word in Hebrew for I. It's not anuhi. It is rather, everyone together? Ani. Ani. The question is, why do the Ten Commandments have God introducing himself with the word anuhi instead of the more common word ani? Now, I want to tell you the truth from the outset. I think that there's no answer to the question. I think that the question doesn't even begin because the Torah interchanges sometimes. Anuhi, sometimes ani. I don't really think there's any deep reason. But the author thinks there's a deep reason. The author thinks there's a very deep reason reason that, that characterizes something very, very powerful and important in Judaism, something that's become very important in my own life. So let's think a little bit. What's the difference between the word ani and the word anuhi? Can anyone point out the one letter that is added to the word anuhi that doesn't appear in the word ani? I heard someone say the answer. The chaf. There's letter chaf. The word ani in Hebrew is aleph Nun Yud, and the word Anuhi is Aleph Nun Chaf Yud. There's an extra letter Chaf in the word Anuhi. And the Meshiloach, Rabbi Mordechai Liner, is going to tell us that that letter Chaf is the secret to the deepest, deepest depths of Judaism, believe it or not. Now, that letter Chaf, sometimes in Hebrew, appears not as a letter in the root of a word or in a word, but rather as a prefix. For example, I could say, approximately at midnight I went home. Or I can say, there's about 20 things over here. The letter chaf is a prefix, means about, approximately, kind of, almost. The meashiloch is going to claim that the addition of the letter chaf into the word ani at the beginning of the first of the Ten Commandments is going to tell us something that's in the ballpark of approximately, almost, kind of, more or less. With that background, we can now read the first paragraph. Then we'll go back and try to explain it. So look at the sheets that I gave out. Here we go. <coughs> I, Anohi, am the Lord your God. It does not say ani. For had it written Ani, it would have implied that the Holy One, blessed be He, had revealed the totality of His light to Israel, thereby precluding the possibility of delving deeper and deeper into His words, for all would have been already revealed. But the letter Chav teaches <coughs> that the revelation is not complete. And it is only a shadow and approximation of the light that the Holy One, blessed be He, will reveal in the future. So God didn't reveal His whole totality at Sinai. And how does the author know that? Because God revealed Himself with a chaf. As if to say, listen to that, this, God said, it's approximately me. God said, it's almost me. It's more or less me that's revealing himself at Sinai. And since I don't see you getting all excited about it, <laughs> I'm going to have to do a pantomime to explain to you what's really going on here. So I'm going to show you two possible forms of revelation without speaking. One is the revelation of Anuhi, as it's written in the Ten Commandments and explained by our author. The other is the revelation that did not take place. The revelation, what would have been had God revealed himself with the word Ani without the letter Chaf? Excuse me for a second. I'm going away. Let me get back in.
revelation as Ani. I am God. Bask in my presence. See the illumination, the full truth of God as he brings truth and righteousness and light to the universe. Now I'll reveal myself as Anuki. <laughs> <laughs> That's the revelation of Anuki. God reveals himself and doesn't reveal himself. God kindly reveals himself. God almost reveals himself. That's the meaning of revelation with Anuki, with the Chaf, according to the Mea Shiloh. Now, realize, there's no fuller, greater, complete revelation in the whole Torah, and according to Judaism in all of human history, than this very moment when God revealed himself at Sinai with Anuki, Hashem Elokech, I'm the Lord your God. And the Mea Shiloh is claiming that what God did is stand outside and just show his hand briefly. Why did God do that, according to the Mea Shiloh? Because had he revealed the totality of his light to Israel, that would have precluded the possibility of delving deeper and deeper into his words, for all would have been already revealed. In other words, God could have given all the truth to the Jewish people and through the Jewish people to the world. And then we'd have it. But that would have precluded the possibility of searching for it. You can't search for that which you have. You only search for that which you don't have, that which is lost, that which you cannot see. So apparently, according to this reading, God decided that it's more important to set us off on a journey towards searching for the light than giving us all the light at the same time. The Mea Shiloh is trying to say that the search for truth takes priority over having the truth itself. The assumption is God could have given it all. But that would have closed the door on the journey. Now what does it say about the values of the Torah as understood by the Meshiloach that God decided not to reveal what he could have revealed because he wanted us to search for it on our own? It means that we should never feel that we have it. We should never feel that truth or Torah is static. Rather, it's going to be, it has to be dynamic. It has to be a path. It has to be a journey, according, according to this. And of course, uh, Rav Shmuley mentioned that one of the uh, mottos of the Beit Midrash here in Phoenix is humility. Well, what humility this is, I can never think that I have it. I always have to know that it's going to be a little bit more tomorrow. I will find a little bit more tomorrow what I have now is only an approximation and a shadow of the light that the Holy One, blessed be He, will reveal in the future. At every moment, I have to be filled with uncertainty and doubt because I know that I have only a little sliver and I've just begun. I want to read now the next paragraph. To the degree that a man attains greater depth in Torah, he realized that until now he was in darkness. This is hinted at by the existence of day and night. Day, that is, that God may be blessed, opens the gates of wisdom for a man, and night, that is, that a man should not presume that he has attained completely all there is to know, for all that he has attained is like night compared to the day that is yet to come, and I won't read the rest of the words for now. The author, as a Kabbalist, is looking at the universe 
and understanding that it's structured in a fashion, symbolically, to teach us a deeper message. The world, as a word, is an, is an allegory itself. It's a metaphor. Day and night. There is always going to be night after day and day after night to tell you that when you're experiencing day in your intellectual and spiritual life, when it feels good, when you feel buoyed that you've understood something, that you have some illumination, you're coming closer to understanding the meaning of life, let's say, always remember that night follows. What does that teach, the fact that night follows? That your day is really night. You should always know that your day is really night. What you think you know, you may know, but it's really darkness. And you'll know more tomorrow, hopefully. After every day comes night, and then comes another day, and every day you have is like night compared to the day that should follow. So we're always on a progression. We always know that we know barely nothing. And the only way is the way forward. And you might say that at the end of life, finally, at the best case scenario, we'll know it all. But he says, no. He says, the words I did not read, and so forever. There is not supposed to be any hope that I'll know it all. Actually, this author, the Meshaloach, uh, has a little statement at the end of the Torah when it describes the fact of the death of Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, <coughs> Moses, our teacher. He died at the age of 120. And the Meshiloah could be understood as saying that Moses died because he knew everything and therefore there's no point in living anymore. When you have it all, in a certain sense you have nothing because you've lost the, the taste of life. The taste of life is not in knowing. It's in knowing that you don't know which provides the impetus to search, claims our author. And the last line of that paragraph says, and therefore, all is like night compared to the light that the Holy One, blessed be He, will reveal in the future. I want to read another paragraph. And this is why we find, juxtaposed to this verse, the verse at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I'm the Lord your God, that says, do not fashion for yourself an idol. That's the second verse. The second commandment in the Ten Commandments. The first is, I'm the Lord your God. The second, you should have no idols in front of me. And it's pointed out, as we're about to see, that the word for idol in the second commandment is pesel. You have to remember that. And then he says, it is written in the Holy Zohar, the book of Jewish mysticism, because it is written, soul, chisel for yourself, two tablets like the first ones, Therefore, it is written, do not fashion for yourself an idol. I have to explain. So, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, perhaps you remember that Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. He came down. He broke the tablets, unfortunately, when he saw the golden calf. And later, Moses was called up to God with the command to make a second set of tablets. And when God told him to make the second set of tablets, God said, Psolacha, chisel for yourself these tablets. And our author is pointing out that the word used in Hebrew, the verb that says chisel for yourself these second tablets, is the same root that appears in the second commandment of don't make a chiseling, don't make an idol. The noun for idol is pesel, and the verb for chisel for yourself, the second set of tablets, is psol. And he wants to say there's a deep connection between what we're not supposed to do, don't make for yourself an idol, 
on the one hand, and the making, the chiseling of the second set of tablets, which is something good, on the other hand. And what he's about to say is that the deep connection between making an idol and making the tablets is in the following. There's always a danger of turning your tablets, that is to say your Torah, your understanding, into a idol. There's just a hair's breadth between them. Let's read a little bit more. He says, The explanation for the matter is that the word idol, pesel, is something chiseled and cut to exact size, exactly as intended, lacking nothing. But there is no such thing except for the Torah of Moses, our teacher, peace be upon him, whereas the human mind cannot grasp such a thing with complete perfection. There is a Torah that is complete, chiseled with clear boundaries. It goes to here, it stops here. We know what its content is. But that Torah is the ideal Torah of God. He calls it the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, but no human mind can grasp it on earth, there is no such Torah that is a pestle, that is cut and dried, like we say in English, cut and dried, with clear boundaries. You can stick it in your back pocket and say, I have all the truth in my back pocket. When you suppose, when you think, when you claim that your Torah, that your knowledge, that your position, that your understanding, that your interpretation, that your observance, whatever it is, is the full, complete, absolute way that God wants, that's when you've turned your psolata, that's when you've turned your... Torah, your tablets, into pesel, into an idol. A Torah that is fossilized. And by the way, you hear that the word fossil sounds like pesel? It's the same letters. I once discovered that a few years ago. Fossil, pesel, it's the same, it's the same letters. In Hebrew, the fe and the pe, the f and the p are the same letter. Fossil and pesel. When you turn your Torah into a fossil, that it's all here and it's not going to change and I have it and I have no work to do, no, no journey to go on, that's when Torah, that's when Psolacha becomes Pesel, says the Mei HaShiloach. And that, that's bad, says the Mei HaShiloach. It's always going to be about the humility of the journey, about the search, about knowing that I have more, and that God could have given us it all, but God decided not to do it because he wants us to be on this never-ending movement towards, towards truth. We're going to skip a few paragraphs. Uh, the ending is photocopied on the back of the paper. The second paragraph at the top is the end of this piece of our author, and he says... This is exactly what the Holy Zohar says on the verse. Do, don't make for yourself an idol or image. That's a verse in the Torah. Don't make for yourself an idol or an image. And the author asks a type of question that many exegetes ask. Why does it use two words to say what it could say in one word? Why say don't make for yourself an idol or an image? They're the same thing, idol and image. Say don't make an idol and we're finished. What is the Torah coming to add or to emphasize by using two words? And his answer is, idol refers to positive commandments. I thought he was talking about idolatry. Now he says he's talking about something, positive commandments, things we're supposed to do, things that God wants. An image refers to negative commandments, for nothing has been revealed to man in its entirety. In other words, what he's saying is, the Torah has to say, don't make an idol or an image, because it's not talking about a wood or metal thing you set up in the corner there. It's talking about 
you and your knowledge and your Torah. It has to say it twice because there's two dangers, as it were. You can turn the positive commandments of the Torah into an idol, or you can turn the negative commandments of the Torah into an idol. You can think that the positive commandments are all you're supposed to do, and there's nothing else. You understand them completely, and we're finished. You can think that the negative commandments, negative commandments say, don't eat this and don't eat that, don't do this on Shabbat, don't go here, don't go there. You can say, think that's all it is. I understand it completely. There's nothing more to learn. In both cases, whether the positive or the negative, in other words, all of Torah and all of life, there's always the danger that I'm going to slip into that arrogance of thinking that I have it all. So the Torah has to warn us again and again and again. And I'll just add, before we look at other sources, that uh, for me, these words have been an inspiration not only throughout my life, but especially in the work I'm doing with Palestinian-Israeli reconciliation that I'm going to talk about later. Because most of us, especially the Israelis that I know, we think we have the only truth. Uh, we don't admit, we don't know, we don't think that the Palestinians have anything. No history, no narrative, no legitimacy, no consistency in their world understanding. We Israelis just tend to denigrate and don't know, don't see. And then I start just two years ago, as I'll talk about later, meeting Palestinians, hearing about their lives, hearing about their narrative, hearing about their religion, hearing about their truth. And I began to see there's something there that for 33 years of my life I didn't see. And it takes a lot of tzimtzum, uh, a lot of contracting yourself to be able to just hold back and don't argue and don't object. Just listen to another truth. Just listen to another truth. And from my perspective, I think from the perspective of our author, listening to another truth and finding a way to add it into my understanding of the world is part and parcel of this journey that God directed us upon of finding more and more of the Torah. Anyone want to uh, add, subtract, argue, throw eggplant? <laughs> Please, at least, you know. I was once at a lecture of a famous... Uh, parliamentarian in Israel, and he ended and asked, are there questions? No one spoke up. He said, the first question is always the hardest. Let's start with the second. <laughs> Here's the second question. The second question is, well, we shouldn't be so, so surprised uh, of, the, of the use of Anochi and the interpretation of it that you're describing. It's, it's, it's good, but when, Moses, when God first introduced himself to Moses, he didn't reveal everything either. He said, I will be who I will be. Oh, I like that. So it's not new news. That's and very true. Good. I think that's good. Thank you. And, and he used on a key at that point. And he used on a key twice with Jacob when he went to sleep. How did you know what we're about to do? I paid <laughs> that guy to say that. <laughs> a I've learned, sender, right? I've learned, yeah, I've learned to see it is that it's, uh, the Anochi is said by God when he will actually be with you on your journey. I see it like, like that because in both cases that was, the, that was what was being stated. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so what about when uh, Moses was in the, saw God's glory? What did the, was Anochi used at that time? Or on me? I don't 
remember, uh, if someone wants to look on their iPhone or on their phenomenon, <laughs> but, but let me tell you that what you're saying is so on the mark. Because there, God says, I will not show my face, only my back. It's the same idea of God's only partial revelation, a partial truth That's and not complete truth. Hundred percent. His ideal held up in that case too. So you have to look it up. That's your homework. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It strikes me that this 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 ethos not only strikes humility in the self that I don't have things worked out, but it also strikes compassion for the other in that um, we can't be so judgmental and blaming one another. They. Everyone has their inconsistencies and their faults. Nobody has their system worked out yet. It's, it, it's, it's not only a message to, to the arrogant, but it's also a message of, of, of being more gentle with other people. Yes. In that, that, how can we expect perfection of anyone? Yeah, everyone's a work in progress, or should be a work in progress. <laughs> good, good. So, <laughs> I didn't hear. You have to say that louder. You have to some people are just a piece of work. <laughs> so Sender uh, pointed us to the verses in the book of Genesis when God says he will be with Jacob and indeed I, I'm going to follow his directive that's the next source that we will see uh, continuing where we left off so this is the same author not anymore in the book of Exodus but on the book of Reshit, the book of Genesis and perhaps you remember the background that Jacob has duped his father into bestowing upon him the blessing that was really meant for his brother, for Esau. Uh, and Esau was very upset, to say the least. Esau wants to kill him. And as a result of that, Jacob has to flee for his life. As he's fleeing for his life from his mother and father's home to the relatives in Mesopotamia, he lies down for the night, puts a rock under his head, and dreams. And in the dream, he sees the ladder with angels going up and down and down and up. We won't go into that. And then God says to him, Behold, I am with you. And when God says, Behold, I am with you, God says, I, with the word, as we just heard, Anochi, with the extra cha, the letter that indicates approximation, a little bit, kind of, almost. And the Meshiloch says the following, And behold, I am with you. It does not say Ani, for the letter Chaf is indicative of the source of life without end, as it says in Sefer Yitzirah. Sefer Yitzirah is an old uh, proto-Kabbalistic work. We won't go into that. So he just told us that the letter Chaf is indicative of the source of life without end. Had we not learned what he said in the book of Exodus on the Ten Commandments, we would be scratching our beards. Everyone together? <laughs> We'd be scratching our beards. What is he talking about? How is the letter Chaf the source of life without end? But now that we've learned what he said in the Ten Commandments, we all understand. What he's saying is the source of life is the fact we don't have the whole truth. That's what gives us a reason to live, that gives meaning to our life, that we don't know the truth. The meaning of life does not come from knowing the truth, it comes from knowing that you don't know. That's like totally revolutionary, but that's so powerful to hear. Vitality comes from uncertainty, comes from doubt, comes from questioning yourself, from knowing that someone else and other books might have something to teach you. So what does that have to do with Jacob fleeing from his brother on the way to Mesopotamia? Let's read on. The Holy One, blessed be he, showed him then, showed to Jacob, 
all the refinements. That's a Hebrew word that's really difficult to, to translate. Refinements, uh, clarifications, purifications, uh, difficulties, challenges, all that's included in the word that I translate here as refinements. The Holy One, blessed be He, showed Him then all the refinements through which He would have to suffer and be refined. Wait a second. God just said, I will be you with you. And how is God going to be with him? Well, we would think <coughs> be with him means protect him. There'll be no trials, there'll be no tribulations, there'll be no danger, there'll be no suffering. But the Mishnah says the opposite. God says, I will be with you. How will I will be with you? I'll show you all the ways I will be with you. Through your father-in-law trying to steal your wages. Through your father-in-law tricking you with who you're going to marry. With staying up 20 years late at night with the wolves uh, coming against your flock and, and killing animals. All those trials and tribulations, those are the ways that God will be with Jacob. And now you hear that God is hinting that had gone God been with Jacob like a watchman that locks the door and prevents all evil from encroaching, that type of being with Jacob and guarding him in the deeper sense is just the opposite of being with him. For God to really protect him, quote-unquote, God has to make him vulnerable to all these trials and tribulations because you're only really protected. In other words, you only really grow and become into the fullness of being a human being when you have all of these difficulties. God is being with him by not being with him. Through all of them he promised him, that is God promised him, and I'll watch over you through all your journeys. There's going to be a progression. There's going to be a journey. It's not going to be static. And I'll return you to this land. Return you says our author, and that's what the verse says, is the language used concerning returning a lost object. Jacob should see himself as a lost object. For no one could truly understand words of Torah without having first stumbled in them. The Talmud says in many places, not just in Tractate Gitin that I mentioned here, but in many places the Talmud says you could never understand anything unless you first crack your teeth over it. You don't understand. You Again, you scratch your beard and you're really, really confused and you make one try and it doesn't work and a second try and finally you figure it out. That's when you got it. But if it came on a silver platter just immediately understood it, and you didn't struggle over it, that's not a deep understanding. It's most probably an incorrect understanding. In any case, it won't stay with you. Only when it doesn't come in a silver platter, and you are challenged, and you work hard, and you struggle, and then you get it, that's when it's really something that's acquired by you. Now, in the simple meaning of the Talmudic phrase, that no one truly understands words of Torah without having first stumbled in them, it's talking about study. <coughs> But for our author, it's a metaphor for all of life. There's nothing in life that you can acquire in a deep sense <coughs> unless you first struggled over it and stumbled over it and were down and had picked yourself up. That's when you really become. And the point of the thing here is that God is watching over Jacob by allowing him to stumble, by allowing him to become, as it were, a lost object. And that provides the potential for becoming a found object. And a found object is much more found than one that was never lost. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
if you have, you know, I don't know what it is, uh, uh, a beautiful uh, heirloom that was passed on in your family for three generations, and it's always there in your mantle, that's beautiful. But if it's stolen, God forbid, and then you get it back, then it really means something. And it's true. Say it again. How did you know? That's exactly what's going on here. He's about to get to that in the next line. You're just reading ahead, right? <laughs> so, uh, Sender says we should go forward. That is to say, that is by way of the stumbling block that presents itself to a person that the words of Torah enter into his heart with greater desire than otherwise. And again, words of Torah here is a metaphor for all of life, all the meaning of life. And this is what it means when it says, I'll return you. God says, I'll return you to this land, which is the language of repentance. So what does repentance have to do with it? Perhaps uh, some of you have heard a Talmudic statement. Perhaps you've heard this on Yom Kippur. That says, I'll say first in Hebrew so I can get it in my mind. In the place where the penitent stands, the truly righteous cannot stand. If you're truly righteous in the sense you've done the right thing all your life, that's great. <coughs> but if you sinned and then repented, that's even better. That's even better. Because then the status you've attained is your, is your attainment. And you've struggled over it. It's meaningful for you. And you're afraid of losing it, so you're always on the guard. Then it becomes deeply you as the person who was there all the time, who was that sadiq, who was that righteous person all the time. It's a little less meaningful and a little bit less him than for the person who was that baal tshuva, that penitent. So what that means is to be a deeply nuanced human being with the, with the texture of experience and depth you have to sin. Okay, that's not an invitation to go out and do whatever you might be thinking of. <clears throat> Hold on, come back. Uh, the Meir Shiloh comes very close in his writings to inviting us to sin, but uh, according to most interpretations, he doesn't actually say go do it. But if you've done it, that's an opportunity. Wow, that's an opportunity to find yourself afterwards, to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. So again, it's not an invitation to sin, but we've all sinned, which means we all have the potential to become deeper, better, stronger, more powerful, more human, more textured, more, more nuanced. We should see failure as an opportunity. Failure is an opportunity. And Jacob, to sum up what we just read, Jacob was granted by God all the failures and all the struggles and all the pains so that he would be able to come who he's supposed to be. Comments? To connect it to what you were saying earlier about the uh, um, the truth um, and can we um, the possibility of another uh, in that in that wrestling with that with that uh, our earlier texts um, the uh, day and night and etc. That Jacob through the wrestling. Um, on the other end is blessing, is that he receives blessing for the struggle, and that perhaps when we do have that contraction, that seems to him that ability to listen and not argue and not fight, but just to listen, like Jacob, there's blessing on the other end. I agree. Which would go even further because it was about the night and the day, and it was the day that was coming. 
So it goes even further with your text that the day and the night. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So here's another source from the same author on the same subject. And this is from the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, when Abraham, Abraham is called upon by God to leave his father's home and his land to go to the land that I will show you, says God. Uh, the words are, El ha'aretz asher God says, go to land that I will show you. The land of Israel says, God, go to land that I will show you. And for the Meshilot, it's extremely symbolic that God uses the future tense, will show you. So listen to what he says. For Avraham Avinu, Abraham our patriarch, peace be upon him, was great in his desire to experience the place of his clinging to life in the presence of God may he be blessed to the greatest degree possible. And God, may he be blessed, told him to the land which I shall show you. Will, shall, in Hebrew it's the same thing. That means that his clinging to God would be in the place called which I will show you. For it has no boundaries. At all times, the illuminations of the infinite blessed one will be expanding for you more and more. And this you will find in the land of Israel. So you know, where I come from, uh, people talk all the time about the boundaries of the land of Israel. We're defining them. You talk about that in in our Israeli parliament, you talk about it in the Congress of the United States, politicians talk about the boundaries, and, and Jews living in the land, of course, are very concerned that this is ours, and it's not theirs, and here's the boundaries. But says the Meir Shiloach, that in a symbolic, spiritual sense, the meaning of the land of Israel is a place without boundaries. It's also a place of will, will show you. It symbolizes the unbounded, infinite God who has more and more infinite truth that we can reveal to ourselves every day and every moment. So the land of Israel signifies that spiritual truth that you don't know the truth and you don't know where it is. You just know that you have to go one more day and one more day and it will be shown to you continually unfolding without boundaries, expanding more and more. That's what it means for the Meshulach to be a Jew. Always developing, always dynamic, always changing, always building, always expanding. Yes? That's what it means for him to be a Jew without the state of Israel existing. I don't understand. Well, when, was, when, when did he live? Oh, he wrote, right, 1830s, 1840s. So before, before a state, before it took every Jew, this is how you would live, this is how we all lived before Israel. Uh, you're making it uh, political, but I don't think he's no, talking. He's not thinking it's a of anything. Spiritual aspect, mm-hmm. because it didn't—it it didn't exist concretely. Well, it was alive, and for part of our lives, it didn't exist either. So it's a, it's a spiritual journey at that point. Got it? Yeah, but I would say, in my opinion, that for me, the state of Israel is the greatest blessing that the Jewish people could have hoped for. It's the meaning of my whole life, but uh, it certainly has caused us to concretize, to limit, to demarcate. (coughs) And perhaps the Meshulok is telling us that even when you have to live in this physical world with with its boundaries and with its politics and with states, uh, always remember that on a spiritual level, we always should be going beyond boundaries and, and expanding.
Uh, I'm going to look at my watch, and it's too late, but that's okay. We'll just keep going. We, said we have until 7. So the next source we'll do very briefly, because I want to get to the last one. Uh, so the next source, and Yaakov sent messengers before him. This is in the Torah, the book of Genesis, Parshat Vayishlach. That is to say that Yaakov, Jacob, has been in Mesopotamia 20 years, 22 years. He's on his way back. He's coming into the land of Israel to come back and see his mother and father. And of course, of course, he remembers that 22 years ago, his brother was chasing after him to kill him. If I were Jacob, I would be afraid. I would be remembering my, uh, my brother and uh, quaking in my boots. But what, and therefore, I would think that he should be trying to come into the land of Israel under the radar screen. So Esau, so his brother Esau won't find him. But instead of coming under the radar screen, what does it happen? What happens? He sends out messengers to his brother and says, here I am. It's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. So why does Jacob send messengers before him to Esau? Why did he do it? Why? We find the following in the Midrash. He is there minding his own business, meaning Esau is minding his own business. He probably wouldn't know that Jacob was coming if Jacob didn't shout and say, here I am. And you go and send messengers to him? Why did you do it, Jacob? The Midrash doesn't mean, says our author, that Jacob acted improperly. Rather, the matter is to be understood in the basis of, I'm going to skip some material now. I'm going to go to the next page, top of the next page, the first line. Therefore, even though Yaakov, Jacob, understood that he would suffer from Esau, he also understood that unbounded positive things would grow from this matter in the longer run, and that is why he was unable to refrain <coughs> from sending to him. Jacob knew that for there to be meaning in life, you have to take risks. You have to go beyond your comfort zone. It doesn't mean you have to risk your life. It's a metaphor. When you know there's something risky, but something might come of it, you might be able to accomplish. Now, you might fail, but you also might learn something new. You might be challenged with ideas that are very spiritually dangerous to you and uncomfortable, but perhaps you will learn something. If you're a Democrat, it's very difficult to listen to the Republicans. And if you're a Republican, it's very difficult to listen to the Democrats. And it's challenging, it's threatening. So unless you really are certain that you will just fall apart, challenge yourself, risk, take the risk, go to some place <clears throat> that is uncomfortable for you, says the Mayor Shiloh, because that's the only way to grow. That's the only way to be a human being. And of course, if you know that the truth that you have is all partial, and the only way you're going to become more and more in line with God's will is by adding more and more partial truths to your repertoire, then you have no choice but to search out those truths that don't at this point fit in your back pocket. They will expand your back pocket, hopefully, and rip it apart, actually, <laughs> in order to make your soul uh, broader and broader and greater and greater. So uh, we have one more text that uh, we'll look at, and that's not from the Meishaloach, it's from the next generation of Hasidim. It's from the Sfatimet, the language of truth. Uh, <coughs> Gera Rebbe, he died in 1905. And we're going to read, we're skipping one as you can see. The Midrash quotes the verse. You're all with me? Stay with me for five, six more minutes, okay? The Midrash quotes the verse, Death and life are in the hands of the tongue. Mavet v'chayim biyad halashon, from the book of Proverbs. The Midrash, our ancient Midrash from 2,000 years ago, goes on to quote Ben Sirah, which was an ancient wisdom text that did not make it into the 24 books of the Bible, who told of one who found a glowing ember and blew upon it. 
lighting up a flame. Then he spat on it, and it was extinguished. So you understand that, that there are embers, perhaps on by a campfire. I can blow in them gently and fan the flame. I can spit, and then they are extinguished. And that little uh, story, that anecdote of the campfire, is related by the Midrash, quoted by our author, to the verse in Proverbs, death and life are in the hands of the tongue. And he's about to say that when you blow on the ember and fan it into a flame, that's when life is in the hand of your tongue. But when you spit on the ember and it goes out, that's when death is in the hand of your tongue. You can kill those embers or you can make them come alive. Those embers are a metaphor. For what? Here we go. This ember is found everywhere. It is the spark of Torah, which is called fire. The word ember is numerically equivalent to the word truth. Truth refers to Torah by which everything was created. Thus, the embers to be found everywhere in everything. So our author is assuming the Midrash that says that God looked in the Torah and created the world. The world is like a blueprint for the world, and that means that there's something of the blueprint in the world, just like there's something of the blueprint in the house. So there's something of the Torah everywhere, everywhere. And Torah, of course, is truth, and the numerical equivalent of truth in the gematria is the same as ember. So for he wants to say the world is full every place you go with embers of Torah, with embers of God, with embers of truth. And you have a choice. You can go around your whole life spitting on the embers and they'll go out. Or you can go around smiling at the embers and blowing on them gently and you can give them life. And that means that you're going to encounter lots of different ideas as you walk around this world. Some are going to be quite repugnant to you. There'll be democratic ideas and republican ideas. There'll be Muslim ideas and Jewish ideas. There'll be Christian ideas. There'll be Protestant and Catholic ideas. There'll be Reformed, Conservative, and Orthodox, and Ultra-Orthodox, and Hasidic ideas. And since we're only one of those 20 different varieties, they all seem a little bit out of our comfort zone. And we, I think many of us have the natural desire to spit on them, whether literally or figuratively. And it's so powerful that spitting is a way of denigrating something. Symbolically, you can go around spitting your whole life. We know those people are always saying, always complaining about the Democrats or the Republicans or the Reform or the Conservative or the Orthodox or the Muslims, whatever it might be. They're spitting all their lives. And our author says, stop spitting and start blowing gently. To blow gently means to tease out of that party or that idea or that culture, that religion, an idea you can relate to, an idea that you can find truth, an idea that you can incorporate into your own life, so your own understanding, your own religion, your own, your own worldview. And in that way, your worldview becomes greater and more expansive, and you've brought the sparks of God's Torah that are scattered around the world, you've brought them to life, and you've united them into a meaningful whole that's going to power you through the world with more compassion, and more understanding, and more openness than could have been otherwise. We're about to end. The Jew is capable of filling the potential of this spark. Of this it is written, he blew the breath of life into his nostrils, and man became a living soul. That's what it says in Genesis. God created man with breath. He blew into us breath. He didn't spit at us. He blew breath into us. Living soul is rendered by the Aramaic translation as a speaking spirit. We have the power in our mouths to awaken life that lies everywhere. 
In other words, God gave us life by breathing into us, and we can now imitate God by going around the world and breathing life into all those sparks. And in doing so, not only are we expanding ourselves and bringing all the truth together and making it alive, we're actually doing what God did. We're imitating God. We're becoming God-like. We are being God-like by bringing all those sparks to life. Thank you. Yeah,